El CERN es el laboratorio de investigación de física de partículas. July 4th, 2012, and scientists from CERN, the European Agency for Nuclear Research, step in front of boards of journalists to unveil a scientific Aujourd'hui est un grand jour pour les physiciens. Before steel and coal, before economy, before uh, before energy, um, after a, a long war that saw us European people fight against each other, we decided to stay together and to build first a scientific initiative, and that was CERN, CERN, the Conseil European pour la Recherche Nucléaire. So it was first science and then the rest. <laughs> Uh, that's quite important for us because our culture is based on what we call scientific revolution. Welcome back to the European Pavilion podcast, a series produced as part of the European Pavilion program launched by the European Cultural Foundation in 2020. For more information about this initiative, check out our website at culturalfoundation.eu. In this podcast, together with our guests, we want to stimulate a critical and creative debate about the future of Europe. I am your host, Laure Gablier. To mark the occasion of Europe Day, the European Pavilion podcast is broadcasting its final episode. Celebrated on 9 May, Europe Day marks the anniversary of the Schuman Declaration, which proposed that the common trade in coal and steel will ensure lasting peace and unity in Europe. Today's challenges show us that this ideal from 71 years ago no longer holds. For this concluding episode, We have invited three guests from three generations of Europeans to look back at the European project and look ahead to the future. What could be, in the years and decades to come, the cement that holds us together? The emotional and material bond, or what I would like to call cementiment, that will weave a sense of Europeanness. To start our conversation, I asked our guest, Tobias Holle, Sylvia Bencivelli, and Caroline Christophe Bakarjev, what they think are the successes and failures of the post-war European project. I feel moved by everyone who's who wants to change something and who wants to do something. And out of fear, out of their personal interest, whatever, but they want to do something. I'm Tobias Holle, I'm from Fridays for Future Germany and um, I'm based in Aachen at the point where the three borders of Germany, uh, the Netherlands and Belgium meet, so um, a pretty international point. 
the main part, so the peace union, um, the European Union as a peace project works surprisingly good, actually. <laughs> It's really unbelievable if we see uh, in the later hist history, in the last 200, 300 years. It's, um, it's incredible what we made in whole Europe, but especially the, the European Union. So the, the biggest aim of the or target of the European Union and the trade agreements is successful. My name is Silvia Bencivelli. I'm Italian. I'm uh, 43 years old. I work as a freelance science writer. I am a medical doctor, actually, but I don't work as a doctor. Uh, I write as a job. I write and I speak to the radio and I write for TV and I write books, but all about science, science and medicine, mostly. The success um, of this project uh, are that maybe that we are talking together, um, me, I'm in Rome and you are, I think, in the Netherlands, but you're friends. Uh, a, that's a success. People like us uh, grew up in a place that thought that borders were not forever. And we, we didn't have borders forever. I mean, during our youth, borders... Uh, borders just didn't exist anymore. After 1992, uh, after Maastricht, we became to travel, to, to study in other countries, just to visit our countries, just to learn other languages. And as I was young, it was quite, quite normal for us to think that I've studied French and German in school and then I've learned uh, English just traveling and meeting people. And we were thinking about... Uh, uh, Europe has our cradle, and we were all together. And I think there is, a, there is still a generation that's our think about Europe as our country. For Silvia Bencivelli and Tobias Holle, peace and mobility are cornerstones of the Europe we enjoy every day. Achievements so obvious that they become almost invisible. For our third guest, there is an additional trait that we tend to overlook something that some people consider to be incidental, but that in fact turns out to be a tremendous asset. I tend to be an optimist, so I think the successes are enormous, uh, enormous. And uh, there are some failures, uh, of course. Hello, uh, I'm Caroline Christoph Bakarjiev. I am the director of the Castello di Rivoli Museum of Contemporary Art and the Collezione Cerutti in Torino, uh, Italy, on the hills just above the city of Torino. And formerly I was uh, many, many things, amongst which the director of the Documenta 13 in 2012. I, I don't assess badly these years after po uh, the Second World War. I mean, the horrors of the Second World War needed to be elaborated, the Nazi fascist regimes, uh, to, to come out of, of a work of Durchsarbeiten, to work through this uh, psychoanalytically, socially, politically. Many young people met each other through European programs like Erasmus. So I, I think that one could see uh, many positive things, one of which, is skeptical thinking and the ability to analyze oneself and to criticize oneself. This is really a success of, of Europe. 
the capacity that Europe had after Adorno, after the School of Frankfurt uh, that wrote the dialectic of the Enlightenment to criticize the Enlightenment, to understand that Europeanness at its core, uh, rational thinking at its core, also brought to horrible consequences in the world, in particular colonialism. So the relationship between Europe and the rest of the world was a colonial relationship fundamentally. So I think that one of the successes of Europe is the ability to self-criticize and to see what one does as, as not positive. Therefore, your question to me is a typical European question. What are the failures, you know? The ability to read ourselves with, with the harsh and severe ability to self-criticize and therefore to change and therefore to evolve. Self-criticism is indeed an essential quality and it is all the more important in times of transitions. When we have to adapt to new conditions and face growing challenges, which, as our guests observe, go beyond the borders of the nation states or Europe itself. The idea of the European Union stays, but we have to do or have to have more change than we had maybe before. The first target to reunite the European Union, also the East Bloc and the West Bloc, this was a success, but then. The, the expectations of the European Union, also of the society changed and the needs of the people of the European Union. And this is something many institutions are kind of realizing it now in the European Union, but did it too late. So we knew that there was more time 10, 20 years ago, but right now we have to do more radical change. And uh, this is quite heavy, actually, if we see the European Council, um, that we are have to include everyone and every opinion, 27 states, that's heavy, that's really heavy, and with all different cultures. So I think that people in Europe um, are perceiving uh, Europe as a bureaucracy machine for a long time now. And uh, we feel like we have uh, um, a weak leadership. And uh, the pandemic has shown that the, the leader, a weak leadership is a big problem, problem for everybody. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, just Italians were eaten by the pandemic. And uh, the rest of Europe thought that it was our problem. And in, in, in a moment, we faced that Europe was maybe an illusion. And it was a big deception for us. There is urgent work to be done. The coronavirus crisis has acted like a pressure cooker, accelerating the pace of processes, such as the increase in inequalities, that require our attention. As Silvia Bencivelli tells us, it has particularly tested our sense of solidarity. For Tobias Holle, in these troubled times, a renewed common project is all the more necessary. At a point where it has to decide, does it want to go forward as the European Union as a whole, or does they want to have every state in it in a consensus? This is also in the democratic question, but also in the climate question. It's, it's a big, big question we have. And um, this is where we have to maybe also have stronger statements by the, by the, by the states. This is something we need that has to change. So we have to come closer in the targets we have. The target has to be one target. For example, beating the climate crisis or going over the de democratic crisis in some countries. 
the question now is if we get closer on the targets or we just say okay we keep it like it is we keep it like a, an economic gathering or economic union and don't have these strategic targets that are more than keeping peace and um, yeah trying to have economic success if colin steel were the unifying materials of europe after the second world war our societies are now going through a period of energy transition away from fossil fuels. This calls for the renewal of the post-war alliance based on materiality adapted to our new conditions. As Tobias Holler rightly observes, we are at a crossroads and the task ahead is to decide whether we reform and expand the policy tools available to Europe. For Caroline Christophe Bakarjev, our current era should also be perceived as a new industrial revolution driven by digitalization. It is not only a question of accelerating an energy transition, but also of addressing our very relationship with technology. These things go hand in hand, both materially and philosophically. I think that what we're facing now is the crisis between the analog experience and the digital experience. With the rapid digitalization, one of the big challenges has been to do the GDPR to regulate the privacy. And I think that to regulate the digitalization will be the biggest challenge because we are like at the beginning of the industrial revolution. Now, if you look at the beginning of the industrial revolution, you had children uh, working because their fingers were little and they could go into machines. There was no concept of the eight hour day, uh, you know, that the day had to be a work day had to be regulated, not longer than eight hours and so forth. Uh, there was work at home, the so-called cottage labor. And now we are, we call it smart working or home working, but it's a return to the cottage labor. And there's a, a very poor regulation of, of um, uh, workers' rights in terms of not becoming alienated by an excess of digital labor in, in the future forms with which through which capitalism will organize itself. So the biggest challenge I think is legislation and uh, the culture, the culture of, of respecting um, the importance of our embodied experience of the world. But the use of this technology without sound evidence of its benefit. We are about to adopt a new instrument for the protection of human rights in relation to artificial intelligence. The current pandemic, they are considerably accelerating the development of vaccine. However, there are also great concerns, such as on the use of facial recognition by law enforcement. Discrimination. The advent of a surveillance society. The weakening of human agency. Information distortion. Electoral interference. The day after our conversation with Caroline Christophe Bakarjev, the European Commission announced a new package of measures for the regulation of artificial intelligence. This is a continuation of an effort started in 2018 with the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. I think Europe is already doing a lot in terms of not accepting a society of surveillance in the way that China has with facial recognition as absolutely a, a mode of daily life, you know, from buying bread to walking down the street. 
and surveillance technologies are used for commercial purposes in the US and in Europe. And this is both something which will hinder Europe from an economic development standpoint, because you can fly, you know, very quickly if you if you don't have any regulation for human rights or animal rights or so on. But so the challenge will be to not take that opportunity to just fly towards growth, but to to grow in what people call a sustainable way, where the digital and the ecological are joined. We need to have some fundamental projects, some projects that, despite of the cultural differences, that we need to fight for. And this is an over-European project, and this is the European culture. That's not means we have to gather together in everything, but we have to change together to a new target, to a new goal. This is totally a paradox on, and I think we can only, actually never will have this as a perfect, um, perfect model or a perfect project answer, but I think we can um, accept that we're different. Having these goals, these projects that are desirable despite of everything else. The reconciliation of digital and ecological issues needs to become a common goal for the future. For Tobias Holle, such common goals will also work across differences and stimulate a sense of belonging that could even give stamina to the European motto, United in Diversity. Fridays for Future, an international movement that Tobias Holle is part of, has set itself such a goal. Thank you for the opportunity to speak on behalf of Fridays for Future. As climate strikers, we are a bit uncomfortable at this award ceremony. Awards are for celebrating achievement, but the achievement we seek has not occurred. The world is in climate crisis, and actions of the United Nations are failing to stop it. We are always being uh, part of the natural world. And that's quite funny because um, it's also true when you see the opposite. People saying that we are destroying nature, which is true, but this is in our nature. So we, as a natural species, uh, we, we use what we find in an environment. And we have always done like that. So maybe now we are at a point in which we can reflect on that. We can foresee uh, what our activities are bringing to the planet and we can making agreements all together and we are really a lot we are seven mil milliards uh, billions in the world so it, it's really necessary that we find a way to speaking all together and to know everybody and everybody has the possibility to to impact on that but um, but we, we still have to remember what we are we are uh, an animal species among other animal species that is used to exchange stuff not just uh, um, inside the species but also outside so with the, the rest of the nature and we tend to colonize we tend to destroy we tend to do this kind of horrible stuff we know that uh, that has some consequences on us and we may study and face and understand and prevent but we still have to, to understand a bit better what the human nature is and not to be so naive thinking that now we don't touch forest anymore.
why the climate emergency raises the question of our role and position on Earth, it also reminds us of our tendency to detach ourselves from the natural world. Caroline Christophe Bakarjev takes us a step further, inviting us to think out of the box what democracy could mean. We need to find a way to provide agency to the non-human. So the non-human doesn't need to be protected, the environment protected, the dogs to be protected, the women to be protected. No, the blacks to be protected. No, we don't need that. We need to find ways that empower the agencies of all the living organisms to express their will through a democratic process. So they think, I say, that strawberries should vote. Now, I'm not exactly saying that. Back in 2012, when she was artistic director of Documenta 13, an international art event in Kassel, she called for the right to vote for bees and strawberries. A thought-provoking statement that confronted our anthropocentric view of the world and triggered a lively debate. And I, I don't believe anymore in a, in a general one-vote, one-person system. I, I think that that doesn't work anymore. And there should be something uh, that is modulated throughout our lives on the basis of capacity. And this can be like, you know, an electoral passport that, that is a digital one, and that can change. So if I become 65, somehow a percentage of my vote for uh, issues that are very local about uh, the elderly, taking care of elderly people, old folks' homes and so on, will be more, it will have a coefficient. For example, if you live in a disenfranchised neighborhood, which is very um, lacking in public services, why can't your vote count more in deciding things that have to do with issues around access to schools and health? I mean, those people who don't have access to schools and health or have to walk so far to catch a subway because there's no subway that takes them into central Paris. So I think that democracy has to be about giving voice in a new technological mode that will be, however, working with ethical commissions and anti-bias groups always together. And, and the systems would need to be updated all the time. I think it can be done. I mean, I don't, I'm not a politician, but if we can imagine this in art, it must be able to be possible in real life, don't you think? Indeed. There are several examples where legal personhood is granted to non-humans, including rivers such as the Wanganui in New Zealand or the Ganga in India. What Caroline Christophe Bakarjev describes points out a flowing representative democracy that Tobias Holler also identifies from a rather different perspective. How to reform the democratic tools within the EU in order to be able to face and react to crises that move faster than bureaucracy and that are larger than the continent. In democracies, if we don't have the majority that wants this and the big majority, not 51%, but a bigger majority, then it's hard to change something. Then there have to be compromises and then it's not... Maybe it's gone a little bit more in the good direction, but it's, it's far away from what has to be done. So I think the European institutions can do this, but right now they're not doing this. So um, 
paradox as well. We want to have the, the member states that are responsible for their own politics, but we also have parliament and the commission on European level. And um, these institutions fighting against each other and they have different interests. I think if they all want to do the same or most of them want to do the same it's possible but they don't want to and uh, this is actually why in, in climate aspects we're on the streets and say we have to have a european movement we have a broader international movement and we have to have every state every member state of the european union on board to change something otherwise it's not gonna happen as fast as we need I think we have to accept that I always saw when I travel to different European countries that we're different and also that we should keep this cultural difference. Um, I think it's it's really important. It's it's totally natural if I go to a group where someone speaks German, that are kind of more interested in the people who speak German because they are more than me. And I think in some discussions, this is not prioritized that much. And I don't think we have to have the, the whole culture or European culture. We have smaller culture, regional cultures. Don't forget that that culture was also um, done by cultural exchanges with the rest of the world. So don't transform European pride in nationalism. And that's, uh, that's very important. We owe a lot of things to our travel and to people we have met traveling. Numbers, for instance, the numbers we use, they arrived in Europe in the 11th century because of Leonardo Fibonacci. Uh, that was an Italian boy who met Arabian merchants during his business. He, he just understood that their way, the Arabic way of counting, which was with a zero, was more efficient than any others we were using here. So uh, now we use numbers because of this kind of moving and we, we, we took that from another culture, North African one. So now we should not think that we have to close borders, not to uh, allow people from the North Africa to come here. It has no sense at all and it's not fair. Coming back to the introduction of the number zero, Silvia Bencivelli gives a powerful example that illustrates the importance of exchange in the development of a sophisticated culture. A culture, moreover, which is rooted in a plurality of languages. The European Union is characterized by a plurality of different languages. This has nothing to do with the nation states. It has to do with the fact that there are people who speak different languages that then created nation states in the 1500s and 1600s up to the 1800s, like Germany and, and Italy. But it is not necessarily connected with nationalism. It's connected with different languages spoken in different territories. Constant movement and exchanges, as well as the plurality of languages, seem to be part of the European ethos. In these ever-changing, ever-moving ideas, one can discern a common feature. We have really great ideas, but we don't have the, the strength or the, the self-confidence to present this. I think this is kind of born out of the history of the United States and Russia on the two sides to say that we want to be ourselves, that would allow us to look deeper what we want, as we said in the cultural part, what we want to aim 
and not make us dependent on the others. We have to collaborate with the others, but um, we can have our own profile and uh, we should have our own profile. And maybe this is something we have to explore for the next years or decade and see which possibilities we have, already have, and um, how we can try to be more our real selves. Plurality needs to be understood philosophically. And yes, of course, the birth of Europe itself is non-European. Because if you look at the word Europa, you know, it comes from the myth of Europa. But Europa was not a European. She was a, um, she was a Phoenician who saw a, a bull on the beach and went into, you know, climbed on the bull, goes into the sea, and basically ends up in Europe and the bull becomes Zeus and they procreate and the children go all over the place to Greece and so on. So in the founding myth of Europe is immigration, is that Europe comes from outside of Europe. So it's a philosophical concept. I come from outside of myself. There is no myself. From its inception, it is from somewhere else. If we join that concept, from its inception, the self is from somewhere else. If we join that concept with the concept that we, we will never reach Europe, because Europe is a goal, it's an imaginary fictional construction, and therefore it is uh, le petit objet A that Lacan would talk about. I mean, you can never find the object of your desire, ça échappe. So if on the one hand, we understand that we will never find Europe, and on the other hand, we understand that Europe comes from before and outside Europe, from across the Mediterranean in the story of the myth, then we understand really that Europe is a transitional concept. It's in transition, it's always in transition in its founding myths and in its, in its nature. But being in transition is a very beautiful place to be. I mean, it's a very vital place. It's a very alive. This episode began with a simple observation. If steel and coal were the materials that brought together Europe after the war, decarbonization and the regulation of our digital realm are two of the goals that could unite us once again. We need a transition that encompasses not only our energy and infrastructure, but also our democratic institutions. Change is not always an easy task. It takes effort and courage, and it also brings its share of anxiety. In these difficult times, the European Cultural Foundation wants to open up people's imaginations. Through the European Pavilion, our ambition is to set up a program that provides the time and space to think and imagine what Europe means today and what it can become tomorrow. In this venture, the European Pavilion podcast has given us much to think about, and I would like to take this opportunity to thank all our guests. There is an old Italian song old, 1982, These, uh, that have been uh, written and sung by an Italian rocker, 
which is uh, Gianna Nannini, and the song is called Ragazzo dell'Europa, that means boy of Europe. Gianna Nannini was young, strong, transgressive. Sometimes I listened to this song thinking that I was born in a completely different Europe. Then I saw the optimism for a new one in the 90s, and now I'm wit witnessing uh, to a crisis. So maybe uh, the next 9 May we may try to listen to songs of that kind because they remind to us when hitchhiking in Europe was dangerous, when boys and girls had to cross borders to meet each other, to study or to do what we normally do without thinking on passports and so on. And it was just 40 years ago. Life was not better at the time. Life is better now. Being one Europe is still the best we could do for us and why not for our children. Tu cominci sempre a qualcosa, poi mi lasci sospesa e non parli di te. Tu ragazzo dell'Europa. Tu col cuore fuori strada. European Pavilion Podcast. You have been listening to the European Pavilion Podcast, a production by the European Cultural Foundation. Concept and realization, Laure Gablier and Alejandro Ramirez. Original music, Gagi Petrovic.